0: You are listening to the Healing Migraines Naturally podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Caesar, and I'm helping women rediscover a migraine-free life. Today, I'm talking to Mary, who runs our awesome Facebook community, about the genetics behind migraines. Everybody wants to know, are migraines genetic? Welcome, Mary. How are you today? Hey, doing great. Good. This is really one of the most talked about topics in our free Facebook group called Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Cesar NZ. And everybody talks about the family history of migraines that they have. Right. And I actually have a family history of migraines. Uh, My mom, she had, she does not believe that she had full blown migraines, but she definitely was a daily headache sufferer. So I remember when I was a kid by the kitchen sink, she would have all her little her little analgesics, her aspirin, her excedrins, her Tylenols. She had a little bin there next to the sink. And every day I would hear her clinking those little tablets out of the little plastic bottles and taking something. She would take something daily for headaches. And luckily, she no longer has that anymore. I was able to help her when I was a naturopathic medical student. I was able to help her oh, that's great. overcome that. She doesn't suffer with that anymore, which is wonderful. Yeah. And then my grandfather, he used to talk about his father. So my grandfather was born in 1918. He would talk about his father. When my grandfather was growing up, he would frequently see his father literally banging his head on the wall of their home in Berwyn, Illinois. He was in that much pain. And at the time, very little medications, if any, at that time for migraines. And so his doctor told him that he needed to move out of the city And go to a rural environment for a while. And so that's what they did. They actually packed up for a few years and moved to Bear River, Minnesota, where my great grandmother's brother lived, Uncle Walt. And so they left the city of Chicago for a few years and lived in rural Minnesota. And that did help. That did help him. That's super interesting.
1: Just the location thing can make a difference. Very interesting.
0: Yeah. So when I started getting migraines, I definitely thought of that. I mean, my goodness. I mean, I can relate, but I mean, I've never gotten anywhere close where... I would consider banging my head on the wall as an improvement, but certainly I know some people have thought about it or even some people have done it.
1: That has to be super traumatizing for your children to watch too.
0: Could you imagine? I mean, certainly back in the day, I don't think they were as concerned about children being traumatized as we are (laughs) in the modern (laughs) parenting world. But yeah, could you imagine? I mean, I have an 11-year-old daughter. I mean, she... I can't even imagine <laughs> yeah. if she saw mommy banging her head violently on the wall, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable.
1: Question. I mean, obviously, you know what to do and obviously probably keep your kids healthy. But it's interesting, too, in the groups you often see not only do they have grandma and great-grandma, but now their daughters and sons suffer from migraines. These poor kids, you know, five-year-olds talking about headaches. I'm like, oh, geez how do you face that as a five-year-old?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's clear, right, that there is something going on genetically, right? There's something that is quote-unquote being passed down. That's pretty clear when you look at your own family history. And then certainly when we go to the doctor, they ask us about our family history, right? It's no mystery in medicine that things are hereditary or predispositions for things are passed down. Right. But It's interesting to ask the question, do our genetics cause the migraine? Because when we talk about genetics, and certainly when my grandfather's father was struggling with migraines, they had not even discovered DNA yet. But certainly they knew, they were no dummies 100 years ago, right? They knew that things were hereditary, that things were passed down, definitely. But in the modern age, now, when we talk about genetics, like, Mary, what what would you say like the typical impression is of a typical person when you talk about a genetic predisposition? What sort of outlook do people have about that?
1: (laughs) It's interesting you said outlook, because in my mind, I'm sitting here going, well, it's Kind of like a, oh, well, this is just the hand I was dealt. Like, guess I just have to suffer. Not, not much I can do about it because it's been passed down for generations. Right.
0: Yeah. Like you said, the hand I've been dealt. What I like to say is that the way we think about genetics now, it's a scientific sounding term for bad luck. Yeah, that's true. You know, 2,000 years ago in the ancient Greeks, they thought that diseases like this were from the gods, from Zeus. You know, you did something to anger Zeus and he struck you down with something. Or just on a whim, Zeus struck you down, right? And so it's interesting that for a centuries we have been thinking about diseases as just the hand we were dealt we were somehow unlucky and now we use the term genetics and we feel a little bit sophisticated with our modern scientific knowledge but really what does it mean other than bad luck faulty cards, right? Yeah.
1: When I think about, too, the the fine line between genetics and, you know, the nurture nature dilemma that we've been going for years and years and years, like there isn't really a fine, clear line between when is it genetic and when is it environmental.
0: Right. And you, right, you raise a very interesting view here right because we can see that things are passed down we can see that things are hereditary and yet not everybody gets things right we can see that there is something in the environment there are environmental factors, whether it's a psychological environment, a physical environment that varies from generation to generation. And we also have some awareness that nurture aspect, that environment aspect is at play too.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's obvious in that even though you have generate, like with your situation, you had generations that suffered from migraines and headaches. If it was solely genetic, changing scenery wouldn't have changed the situation,
0: right? Right. So... I want to talk a little bit today about the Human Genome Project and what we've learned from that. You know, spoiler alert, you are not doomed to have migraines because you have a family history of migraines, right? And so we're going to talk about why that is. And so I want to go back, like I say, I want to start with the Human Genome Project, which they kicked off in 1990. And, you know, prior to that, in the 80s, they started sequencing the genome, genomes of Other animals, and then they decided to tackle the human genome. And so I was actually in college in the early 90s, and so this was something that we discussed. I remember discussing it in the classroom. One of my majors was anthropology. And so it definitely came up in my coursework in anthropology. And at that time, you know, it had just kicked off and the sense of possibility and potential awe that everybody felt around what were we going to discover when we sequenced the human genome. And they were anticipating when they went into the project that we humans would have hundreds of thousands of genes. So simple animals like an earthworm—they have like seven thousand genes—and so they knew going into the human genome project that these simple animals had, you know, seven thousand genes, ten thousand genes. So if an earthworm has seven thousand genes, you can imagine wouldn't it be unreasonable at all to expect that humans would have a hundred thousand genes at a low end.
1: Yeah, that's mind blowing when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, when they finished the Human Genome Project in the early 2000s, I think it was 2003, 2004, now my memory's failing me a little bit, they discovered that we humans have just over 20,000 genes. Wait a minute. (laughs) I know, right?
1: (laughs) Just about three times what an earthworm has. That doesn't make me feel very special. I'm just saying, no, just kidding. I know, right? It's barely better than an earthworm no.
0: <laughs> I know, just three times better than an earthworm, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's plants that have much more, many, many times the number of genes that we humans have. So this really threw the scientific community, the genetic community for a loop. This was not what they were expecting. And so then they had to figure out why, why do we have so few genes? And so in the process of answering that question, they made some really, really important discoveries about what genes actually are and what they actually do, right? Because we kind of have this conception that our genes are our destiny. And the genes that we can see, right, like I have blue eyes, right, and that's a genetic trait, and that's not going to change in my life, I've had blue eyes my whole life, and I'm not anticipating that they're going to turn a different color. The genes that we can see, they have a a permanence, and they have a a quality about them that dictates something. Our eye color is dictated by these genes.
1: Right, I and mean- permanence, it gives the perception, like it would give the person a thought that, oh, it is what it is. And that's how it will always be. Exactly.
0: I have blue eyes, and I have migraines. So what you have to realize about us humans, we are very unique. Other animals are fit only for certain environments. The earthworm has to live in the soil. The earthworm doesn't live too long on the sidewalk. Certain animals have to live at certain elevations, right? They have to have a certain climate. They have to, right? We humans, we can live from the North Pole to the equator to nearly the South Pole. We can eat all different kinds of diets. A deer only eats certain things. A tiger only eats certain things. We humans, we can thrive in the Arctic eating basically nearly 100% animals. And then we can live in other areas where people don't eat hardly any animal food and they're mostly eating vegetables and all combinations in between. So we are extremely unique in that we are unbelievably adaptable. And this is what they discovered when they answered the question. I mean, they knew this before, but when they dug into the question of why do we have so few genes, it's because of our adaptability. And so they created a new field within genetics called epigenetics. And that was created when they answered that question, why do we humans have so few genes? So what they found is that our genes turn on and off, right? We kind of have this conception that genes are on all the time, right? Because my eyes are blue all the time. And so that blue-eyed gene is on all the time. And if that were the case, then we would be dictated by our genes. And so some things... Like blue eyes, they don't, some genes don't switch on and off, but the foundational genes switch on and off. And so when you think about 20,000 genes, right, not a lot of genes, but all of the different combinations of on and off amongst 20,000 genes, that's where you get, I haven't done the math, but millions and millions of different expressions of those 20,000 genes. And the genes, our genes turn on and off due to our environment, our physical environment and our mental and emotional or our psychological environment. What we typically think of as that, nurture aspect. So we are not determined by our genes. Our genes turn on and off due to the physical environment. So the physical environment can be things like the latitude that we're living at, the amount of sunlight that we get every year. It can be our physical environment is the internal physical environment within our cells, each individual cell that will turn genes on or off. So when you, again, when you multiply out all of the different possibilities, there is a tremendous, tremendous amount of different expression that takes place. And this is what gives us humans our ability to adapt. This is what makes us so special. So the earthworm, the little earthworm, their genes, they don't have the ability, their genes don't have the ability to turn on and off based on their environment, they have to have a specific environment and those genes are on for that environment. We have millions and millions of different variations that can be expressed as our 20,000 genes turn on and off. So there was something about that urban environment in Berwyn, Illinois, a hundred years ago, the job that my great-grandfather had that was turning in, I'm sure there were other factors too, that were turning on certain genes that enabled those migraines to take place. And when he went to Bear River, Minnesota, there was something about that environment that either turned on other genes or turned off certain genes that the migraines weren't generated anymore.
1: So is this like the barometric pressure theme? Like for some people, migraines equals, barometric pressure equals migraines has a gene that's turned on. It's not too simple to think that way.
0: <laughs> well, so it is a little bit more complicated than that. And this is where we have to look at the vitality of the system, the system being us as a human body, right? Our physical aspect and our mental and emotional aspect. So the other aspect that is common to all living systems, even things that don't have genes, so ecosystems even, or beehives, every living system has an organizing energy that keeps the system in homeostasis. So if you look at a beehive, I like to use the example of a beehive. A beehive has, I don't know, 10,000 bees. I'm not an expert on bees. Let's say there's 10,000 bees in a hive. So you have 10,000 individual actors and yet the honey gets made. How does the activity of 10,000 individual bees result in the hive functioning properly? There's an organizing energy to every living system. That includes us. We have to be in homeostasis too. There's an organizing energy. We think of this as like a life force. There's something that makes us alive, <laughs> that life force. That keeps everything running smoothly across 30 to 40 trillion cells against between our physical body and our consciousness, our mental and emotional aspect. So when that organizing energy is in homeostasis, in balance, in a state of health, I like to think of that as a needle pointing north. Our needle is pointing north when we are in a state of health, when we are in balance, when we are in homeostasis. And our needles are continuously getting knocked down towards west by stressors physical stressors, mental and emotional stressors. These are part of life. So physical stressors would be something like a barometric pressure change. That's a stressor in the physical environment that impacts everybody. So I guess the question was
1: that because like to me barometric pressure other than when I you know go really high elevation like that doesn't matter much to me like the pressure thing. So is it somebody has a genetic predisposition to be sensitive to that, or does it make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. We do not have the level of detailed genetic understanding to answer that question specifically. But when our needle gets pushed down towards west, so I want you to think of a needle pointing north, and then you have west. And south okay south is like dead <laughs> there's no more life force no okay? <laughs> <laughs> and so somewhere between north and west we have little zones so let me back up a little bit so everybody's needle is getting pushed down towards west by physical stressors mental and emotional stressors. There's no way to avoid that. That's part of life. So other physical stressors could be a car accident. That's a tremendous physical stressor. A bad flu. That would be a very significant physical stressor. So an illness, an accident, an injury, over exercising, right? You can feel that in your muscles. I really stressed myself physically. Mental and emotional stressors, these are the th- types of things that we typically think of as like stress. So this is, you know, oh I know I'm gonna get a migraine after I get off the phone with her. There's something mentally and emotionally stressful about the interaction. And we know, okay, I'm gonna feel it later.
1: And just being worried about having a migraine in general is a stressor.
0: Hundred <laughs> percent percent Exactly. Laying in bed at 2 in the morning going, oh no, if I don't get some sleep, I'm not going to feel good tomorrow. I got a lot to do, right? It's an even more mental and emotional stress. So those stressors push our needles down towards west. It's our own resiliency and vitality that push the needle back up towards homeostasis, towards health, towards north, towards balance. So we have to have enough resiliency and vitality to weather the inevitable stressors that are going to hit us in our life. Now, when that needle is not pointing north, we're not in a state of health, and the body generates symptoms when we are not in a state of health. When we're in a state of health, we feel good. When our needle is pointing northwest, we're going to have symptoms. So what you're going to feel when your needle is pointing northwest is going to be different than what I feel when my needle is pointing northwest. So it's almost like from north to west, that little arc between north and west, you can almost imagine little symptoms along that scale. Okay, well, the first thing, when I get knocked down, you know, I feel a little head pressure. If if my needle gets knocked down a little bit more, I don't sleep so well. If my needle gets knocked down a little bit more, boom, migraine. So as the needle starts going towards west, we go through, we pass through the symptoms that our body is predisposed to generate. It's our genetics that predispose us. The first thing that has to happen, though, is our needle has to get pushed down into the zone, into that symptom zone. So if we have enough resiliency and vitality, we feel that, you know, the barometric pressure change, pushes our needle down, if we have enough resiliency and vitality, we push it back up to north, and we're not affected by the weather. So it's not that our genetics doom us to migraines, it's what symptoms our body is going to generate when we're not in a state of health, that's determined by our genetics. First, we have to get out of a state of health. Okay. So for those
1: of us who are perfectionists by nature... (laughs) get really frustrated when we're not perfect. Do you have to be like 110% perfectly healthy? I'm just picturing this like really regimented, super strict lifestyle that's hard to maintain in order to have my needle pointing north. And that causes more stress, right? Like feeling like you have to be perfect all the time causes more stress. So am I
0: blowing that out of proportion? No, this is a great, great point. So when we have a routine, that insulates us from stressors. So if we, so this is common for people who are prone to migraines. Well, if I get up too early, I'm going to get a migraine. If I get up too late, I'm going to get a migraine. Right? I can never sleep in. I haven't been able to sleep in for years because if I sleep past seven, oh boy. That's going to do me in. So a routine is our habits, activities, habits, things that we do that are consistent. And when we have consistency, the body knows what's going to happen. If we have inconsistency, right? If we, eh, you know what, today I'm going to sleep until eight. The body isn't expecting that. And that's actually a stressor. So if we wake up every day at seven, and then one day we wake up at eight, that's actually a physical stressor on the
1: body. That kind of explains in my mind part of why it is so hard to change a routine.
0: Well, correct. And particularly, so what migraine sufferers will naturally do because they can see those of us that are prone to migraines, we can feel where our needle is more so than other people. Okay, so like, for example, I'm not prone to hypertension. It's not a big thing in my family either. So when my needle goes to Northwest, I don't get high blood pressure. Now, when people have high blood pressure, you generally don't know it. It's like, it's a symptom, but we're not consciously aware of high blood pressure. Your blood pressure has to get pretty high for somebody to be aware that their blood pressure is high. So there are many symptoms that the body will generate that we're not conscious of diabetes. Again, diabetes is not a big thing in my family, but you can be diabetic, you can have high blood sugar and not know it for years if it's not checked, right? Your blood, your blood sugar has to get really, really high for you to have symptoms that you're aware of. So there are a lot of silent symptoms that the body can generate. So if that's the case for somebody, their needle can be pointing northwest, almost to west, and they're not even aware of it. Until it drops to my zone or whatever. Well, you know, if they're not prone to migraines, they're not going to know. You know, if somebody's just prone to hypertension and diabetes, how are they going to know when their needle's pointing northwest? They're going to have to go in for lab work. I just have to pause really
1: quick and just compliment the migraine warriors that we have. Like, I've never seen a group of people that are more in tune with their bodies. Like, really pay attention. And I know that's almost a trauma response. But like, it's kind of cool. Because to me, I'm like, I could go a whole day without thinking about what is my body thinking? (laughs) It does a lot of, them have a lot of good i guess self awareness self care cuz
0: they have had to but here's the thing that's a prison yeah it's true it's a real prison because we can feel when my needle goes northwest i'm going to get a migraine and so i don't have a silent symptom i have a highly noticeable symptom <laughs> that's very obvious <laughs>
1: I better not do anything even remotely out of routine or something will go wrong. And that is the scary, the hard part of it. Exactly.
0: So because we have this awareness, we have an awareness of where our needle is. It's extremely obvious to us. People will naturally try to avoid pain. And so if we say, Oh, geez, I, you know, I went for a long walk and got a rip roaring migraine after that. Okay, a long walk is a physical stressor on the body. If we're used to going for a mile walk and we go for a two and a half mile walk, that's a physical stressor on the body. And that's going to push our needle down. And if we don't have enough resiliency and vitality to push it back up, well, if it gets pushed down into our migraine zone, we're going to get a migraine. So what happens is, oh, I got a migraine after that two and a half mile walk. Okay, well, I'm not going to go for any two and a half mile walks anymore. I'm going to go for two mile walk. Oh, I woke up at eight o'clock instead of seven o'clock and I got a migraine, well, okay, I'm not going to wake up at eight. I'm going to make sure even on the weekends I'm getting up at seven o'clock, right? Because even sleeping late is a variation in our routine. Our body's not expecting that. If there's something unexpected that happens, that's a stressor on the body, on the needle. It pushes the needle down. If we have to get up at 4 30 in the morning to catch a flight, great way to get a migraine if you're prone to migraines. Because again, you have to get up two hours earlier than you normally do. Your body's not expecting that. It's like, whoa, that's a physical stressor on the needle.
1: That's really sad. when, Like we see women talking about just travel and like they can't even go two hours away from home without it throwing their needle completely
0: out. 100%. Driving in a car is a physical stressor on the body. So if we don't have enough resiliency and vitality, that two-hour car ride It's going to push our needle down into our migraine zone. And if we don't have the resiliency and vitality to push it back up to north, we're stuck in a migraine. So a routine protects us. That's a routine forms the bubble wrap around us. And we can have a routine on the mental and emotional side. Well, every time I talk to her, I get a migraine. So I'm never talking to her again. Sorry, I can think of a few people we'd like to say that about (laughs) (laughs)
1: now. We all have a list, migraine or no. (laughs)
0: <laughs> or, you know, it's like, oh, no, it's getting a little heated at work. It's a little getting a little bit conflict at work. Or, oh, no, this thing is due in a week at work. And if I let it go to the last minute, if I have to work till 10 o'clock on this, The night before it's due, I'm going to get a migraine. So then it's like we're really, really managing every, you know, staying calm, deep breathing, meditation, you know, trying to rally all of these little coping mechanisms on the mental and emotional side. That's the bubble wrap that we start to develop to protect ourselves from all of these stressors that are pushing the needle down. So
1: let me ask you like this, maybe I'm just thinking too black and white, but routine, good or bad? Because we don't want to be in a prison or with bubble wrap all the time. We should be able to live a little bit outside of our regular routine. For those of us like me, who I literally suck at routine, asking me to live in a regimented life is really tough. So on the flip side, if it's insulating some of these symptoms and stuff like, which is better, having or not having?
0: Well, what's better is having enough resiliency and vitality to push our needle back up. And then, so some people have jobs that are not routine. Some people travel for work and are going to routinely, right, get up at 4.30 in the morning to catch flights. When I started getting migraines, the job that I had, I worked for a small business that sold telecommunications equipment to other small businesses. So every day I was at a different job site, a different customer site. So there was nothing routine about my job. So routine, certainly, routine is is a positive, but a routine can become oppressive, right? I mean, if you have a certain job that doesn't have a lot of routine in it, that's the opposite of routine, what are you going to do? Quit your job? Many women have to. I mean, have, you know, been forced that direction. Well, again, wouldn't it be better to restore your resiliency and vitality so that you can keep your job? Wouldn't it be better to restore your resiliency and vitality so that when that deadline picks up at work, the mental and emotional stress of that doesn't push your needle down? I mean, you can push your needle back up if you have to stay up till 10 p.m. to get the Presentation done the day before it's due. That physical stress of staying up late, the mental and emotional stress pushes your needle down, but you just push it right back up, you know. And so migraine sufferers, I call it, you know, we to protect ourselves, we sort of wrap ourselves in bubble wrap, and it's no way to live.
1: Well, and that's what I was just wondering. Like, okay, so I, I don't want to use this word, but it's the only one I have. Normal person because we're all normal, but a normal person already has that vitality that pushes the needle back up.
0: Well, so here's the little thing, and and I hear this so often with migraine sufferers. Why am I like this? How come nobody else suffers like this? Why am I so different? Why do I have this burden to carry? Right. Which is why I'm like, I hate to use the word normal, but... (laughs) Yeah, but here's the thing. This is what I learned because I used to think that too until I started my clinical training in naturopathic medical school, actually started working with patients and hearing people's stories. And, you know, I didn't used to only work with women with migraines. So I have heard thousands and thousands of people's stories and everybody's suffering. They may not have debilitating migraines, that are putting them in bed. Migraines is a very unique condition in that it's disabling while we're having a migraine. We literally cannot function or if we are just willpowering our way through. But people, when their needle is pointing northwest, their body is generating symptoms. It is just for you know, for those people that you call normal,
1: <laughs> maybe the better word is a lesser screaming symptoms. People,
0: <laughs> yeah, it's symptoms that aren't putting them in bed, and it, so it's easier for them to fake it. True. So, some people have, I mean, when their needle goes northwest, they have excruciating heartburn, but they can.
1: Fake it. Yeah, you can typically still go to work and you can still
0: function as a parent and you can still, like with heartburn.
1: Yeah. Even though you feel like crap.
0: (laughs) Yeah, migraines are more than just your head hurts. Yeah,
1: I didn't tell you. I actually ended up having a migraine this last weekend. It was just a visual one where I couldn't see, but I was out shopping in my brand new car and I was like, if I can't get rid of this fast enough, I can't drive home. Like it was scary. So it was definitely more than just, oh, you have a bad headache, poor thing. <laughs>
0: Exactly. And yeah, it's disabling if you can't see. If it had started when you were at home, you wouldn't have left the house because you knew what was going to happen. And then it's like, you're out and about. It's like, now what do I do? I can't get home. Yeah, exactly. So everybody has symptoms. Not everybody has migraine symptoms. There are many people when their needle is pointing northwest, they have really severe anxiety. It's very common. And so know people can have anxiety and nobody know and people can have anxiety and not admit it to anybody yeah i can
1: definitely relate to that i suffer from anxiety quite frequently honestly and you know there's just days where you're like "I, i don't know if i can do this today same thing with migraines, though. it's like am i going to make it through today so, everybody has something. Yeah, kind of ugly truth, but kind of reassuring for, <laughs> for migraine sufferers, I guess.
0: <laughs> but we are fortunate. I am so grateful that I started getting migraines because it was so obvious to me that something was not in alignment, right? It was so obvious. I didn't, you know, I had no idea why I was getting them at the time but was so painful, so debilitating that I was highly motivated to get to the bottom of it. And for those that are listening, I talked about my migraine story in the first podcast, if you want to check that out. So I'm glad that I didn't have a silent symptom because my needle would have been sitting at Northwest for a long time getting worse and worse and I wouldn't have had any idea and there's so many symptoms even if
1: you wouldn't like if they're not quote-unquote silent because they're still manageable and you can still function you ignore them longer correct
0: 100%
1: I'll just power through this today you know like we just have to pretend everything's okay and then you never address What's really going on,
0: or people think that the symptoms they have are just normal. You know, a lot of people think it's normal to have heartburn. So sometimes it doesn't even occur to people that the symptoms that they're experiencing when their needle is pointing northwest are even a problem. Right. I think it seems to be
1: more common than not to have heartburn. I know a lot of people on maintenance meds for heartburn.
0: Oh yeah, and when I talk to women, I'll ask them, you know, what are your health concerns? Yeah. And they'll say one or two things and not mention something like heartburn. And then I'll ask, oh, do you ever have heartburn? Oh, yeah, of course. And so it's there are a lot of symptoms that have become so common that people don't even think it's a symptom. They think it's just that's how digestive tract works. Margaret, modern not life, here we are. <laughs> right, except, yeah, well, you know, I'm 40 now. Everybody gets heartburn when they're 40. Uh, right, it People. that's what people think. True, true. So it's not our genes. The genes predispose us towards the expression of certain symptoms when we are not in a state of health. What has to happen first is that needle has to get pushed down to northwest. Got it. What has to happen first is our resiliency and vitality has to get depleted. You know, you look at little kids; they can sleep in the stroller, they can sleep, <laughs> you know, on the uh, in your arm, they can sleep on the floor. Oh, I remember those days. No, I don't. <laughs> So, you know, people get older, people get, you know, 40, 50 years old, you know, if they don't have their special pillow, they, oh no, because the body, that routine of having the same pillow, same mattress firmness, same temperature in the bedroom, the body gets used to that norm. And then if we go outside of the norm, that's a physical stressor on the system, on the needle. Now, a little kid They sleep sleep on the floor. They don't care what pillow it is. It could be a soft mattress, a hard mattress. It could be in a stroller. It could be on an airplane. Those are still physical stressors. The change of the sleep environment is still a physical stressor. It's just that little kids have a ton of vitality, and they can keep that needle pointing north in the face of all of those stressors that are generated with all of those different sleep environments. Right. So the first thing that we want to do, or what is, I would say, not the first thing that we want to do, but what is truly the most critical part of the healing process is to restore our resiliency and vitality. If we don't do that, we are going to have to continue to live in bubble wrap. We are going to have to monitor the barometric pressure. We are going to have to insulate ourselves mentally and emotionally. We want to have the resiliency and vitality so when that person, when we see that person calling, eh, if I talk to her or not I'm going to feel good after the call. That's the level of resiliency and vitality that we want to achieve. Because life is full of stressors. You cannot escape them.
1: Yeah, I am sitting here thinking this sounds like some magical faraway land. <laughs> 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 Probably in Bali, I'm sure. But like, <laughs> I guess you might have to explain a little bit more what, what Resiliency and vitality means in a different episode, but it just sounds like utopia. And, like, how do you get there?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I was, I have a client when she came to me, she had already done a lot of healing. She was well on a healing journey and she started getting migraines when she was in her teens and she was in her 60s when we started working together. And so she was no longer getting the you know, near daily debilitating migraines. However, she was getting migraines whenever she encountered these, what you might call little stressors. So if she went too long on a hike, migraine. If she changed altitudes, guaranteed, you know, three-day skull crusher. And she lives in the part of the country where the lifestyle is you're frequently, you know, going up and down a mountain range. You know, it really wasn't an option for her to just stay put. She was going to be involved in frequent elevation changes. The weather, right? She was sensitive to the weather, right? So it's all of these sort of, and then mental and emotional stressors. She was sensitive to that too. So when things got heated up at work, very, very susceptible to getting a migraine. So... You know, when you add these things up, once a week she was still getting a migraine, which could last for two to three days. Right, which is so long. So long. <laughs> right, I mean, that's almost half your life. Yeah, for sure. So even though this was an improvement, she was still suffering. And what's really frustrating about this is that they seem like such little things. Right, right. Seriously, the weather. Yeah, if you can avoid any of that. Well, then how do you avoid any of that? Possible
1: to avoid.
0: Right. I mean, if if you're living in a part of the country where elevation changes are going to, you know, you're going to go up and down a mountain pretty frequently. Every place has weather. there's no place on the planet that doesn't have weather.
1: (laughs) If you never leave home, you can avoid elevation changes. But weather, you cannot avoid. Yeah, you
0: can't (laughs) avoid that. I mean, things happen at work or within family dynamics, etc. that are mentally and emotionally stressful. So you can't bubble wrap yourself. But in our work together, we were able to identify where her vitality was being drained, So like I've talked about in previous podcasts, like I talk about in my free training called the five steps to healing migraines naturally, to restore our health, we have to do three things. We have to get the nutrients to every cell in the body. We have to clear metabolic waste and toxins and we have to restore our resiliency and vitality. And so we can be draining our resiliency and vitality unknowingly, inadvertently. And one way that we drain our vitality. A common way is with our perfectionist tendencies. And Mary, you've been open about yours. (laughs) I'm recovering.
1: I I gave up a long time. Exactly. Right. It's very, very common amongst
0: migraine sufferers. (laughs)
1: Like four boys around the house makes for a very difficult time to be perfect.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And perfectionist tendency is pretty common amongst us women who are prone to migraines. I'll raise my hand on that one too. (laughs) but this can be the pursuit of that. We can drain our resiliency and vitality in pursuit of that. Now, why are we in
1: pursuit of it? That's
0: the question.
1: I have a whole bunch of thoughts on that, but I don't want to open a can of (laughs) words.
0: Right. So it's not about, Oh, well, I'm just going to tell myself to let it go. Oh, well, I'm just going to do some deep breathing exercises. When I look at the four piles of boys, stinky clothing on the floor. I'm just going to say the serenity prayer. <laughs> uh,
1: yes. Is that the one? Please don't let me kill my children. No, just kidding.
0: <laughs> oh, is that the serenity pl-
1: prayer? <laughs> That's the mother of boys. Don't let me punish my kids too severely for leaving clothes all over the floor. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, but the the work is, why do I have this? button that gets pushed. It's a common scenario, but why is it a button for this particular mom, right? That's the work that needs to be done. And so with this client that I'm discussing, she didn't need a whole lot of work. She needed a little bit of a touch up on that first principle. She needed a little bit of a touch up on the second principle. The majority of her work was in that third principle, restoring her resiliency and vitality. It's cool. And this was the piece that had been missing for her in her healing journey. Because unfortunately, most practitioners are not looking at this aspect. True, true. And we've talked to
1: doctors too. They don't go that deep into, you know, when you go in and get a prescription, you're, you're getting one, maybe one of those addressed, not all three.
0: Well, when you get a prescription, you're actually hitting all, you're, you're compromising all three of those principles. Yes. When I you get trying a
1: prescription to figure how to say it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> not hitting them.
0: Yeah, I got it. Yeah. And so... This, like I say, I give this as an example, right? The answer is not, well, I'm never going to leave the mountaintop. Well, I'm just going to take my Maxalt. I'm going to stay in tune with the weather and take my Maxalt two days before all storms. Oh man, I'm going to quit my job because it's quote unquote, giving me migraines. That's no way to live. So fundamentally, you know, the most important work, you can work on the first two principles. You can do work on getting the nutrients to every cell in the body, and you can work on clearing metabolic waste and toxins. But if you don't restore your resiliency and vitality, you will still be susceptible to all of these things that we call triggers, you know, lack of sleep, wrong pillow, barometric pressure change food, all of these things, we call those triggers. Stress, you know, people will say my mother-in-law is a trigger.
1: (laughs) Not everyone gets a migraine from their mother-in-law, even if she is, they are triggers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, what are you going to do if your mother-in-law is quote-unquote giving you migraines?
1: Right, so... that that just kind of like makes me think about our next episode that we're coming up. You know, we talk about triggers and predisposition and the needle and all of this stuff. So that does kind of beg the question of can you cure migraines?
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Great topic. (laughs) Yeah. Why
1: don't we break for today? Let's do
0: that for the next one
1: right because if it's a genetic predisposition and you don't know how to take that needle and push it back up like you've been talking about I guess you are just stuck with it
0: oh great topic all right let's tackle that for the next one All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And before you go, be sure to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. And let me ask you, do you have somebody in your life who would benefit from what we talked about today? If so, please share this episode with them. Share this on your social media. Share this with other migraine groups that you are in. We really want to get this message of hope and healing out to the migraine community. And if you want to stay connected, join my free migraine Facebook group with over 10,000 women who are rediscovering a migraine-free life. Go to Healing Migraines Naturally with Leslie Caesar, ND, on Facebook, or go to HealingMigrainesNaturally.com, and we will redirect you to the group. Well, thanks again, Mary! We will talk to you soon. Okay, see you then. Thanks, guys.